Welcome to Design Meets Business, a show that inspires designers to think beyond pixels. I'm your host, Christian Vasile, and on this podcast, I sit down with creatives to talk about their stories, lessons they've learned during their careers, and how you can use design to make a bigger impact in your organization. Today, we're talking to Olivier Cotin. Olivier is a former agency owner and a designer with a wealth of experience. And together we tackle topics such as designing in business to business versus designing in business to consumer and how advocating for design in organizations is supposed to be a long game. Olivier, thanks a lot for joining Design Meets Business. Really a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I can't wait to talk about a lot of uh, interesting design topics today. Just to give everyone a background, you and I, we used to work together at British Gas, and although we were in different product teams, we did have a lot of interesting chats over lunch about how and why design struggles to thrive in larger organizations. So today we'll focus a lot on that, but let's begin by giving everyone a bit about your background, You know, what's your story, what brought you where you are today? Sure. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you, Christian, to have me in your podcast. Uh, I've been listening to the first episode and I really like the direction it's going. I think it's a very interesting thing you're trying to do, creating this like, safe space for designers to talk about those questions. So thank you for that. Um bit about my background. So my my background is noisy. <laughs> <laughs> very noisy. Well, noisy is good. It's noisy. <laughs> um, I, wasn't, I wasn't really planning to be a designer. It's been an accident. So what I mean by this is uh, when I went to uni, I was studying accounting. So very different from, from design, right? Because I always wanted to run my own company. That was the main thing I had in mind. And I thought if I know you know, how to manage the books, that would help me to get there. Um, but I got bored. It's too linear. It's one, you know, one way of thinking and it's not really who I am. So um, by the age of 18, I discovered the uh, Photoshop by accident. Started to play play around with, and then I found that it was real. It was actually a job. So then I decided to go back to uni, and I studied what was it called media and communication. So very early early days of this, I was back in France, and uh, at the time I was doing a part time education. So I was working in music, and the interesting thing of this was it was back in two thousand seven. It was when the music industry was in the biggest crisis they ever had because digital just has started, you know, with the illegal downloading and piracy. I worked for a company called uh, Because Music. I was working with the creative director of this record label and I've seen how the digital has really impacted an all business model, right? So it was an interesting thing for me. And I think this is what has kind of shaped my career. I've always been in companies that are always trying to find their fit, trying to change business model, adapting, all that kind of stuff. So after my degree, I started to run my own business. I was 21. I created like a small agency, but it was a small agency for small companies, but with the knowledge of big companies. So the idea was, you know, all the expensive knowledge you can get from Havas, uh, WPP, I wanted to bring this into small businesses because they realized a lot of them had potential but didn't have access to the knowledge and the people. So that's what we started to do. We, I mainly shift to B2B and then B2C. It went really well. Like We grew the business all the way to maybe 
I think it was one million pound revenues, couple of years. But downside of it is I was very inexperienced and I made a lot of mistakes and the cash flow just didn't follow. So the company collapsed. I run this business with my best friend at the time. And one of the things I've learned is business and friendship is not meant to be to be mixed. Because <laughs> unfortunately, we've, you know, our friendship has fallen out. So that's the biggest lesson I've learned is do not do any business with family and friends. And then that led me to go to London. I'm half French, I have Mauritian. So I've always been in uh, close contact with the UK because I've got some family in the UK. And I spoke uh, English very early days. So I always wanted to go to London. I didn't know how and when. The Olympic started in 2012. I came for one weekend and I never went back. <laughs> That's my story. But I didn't know anyone in the UX industry. So I applied for, I think, 100 jobs. I had, made, I had a lot of rejection. And then the first company that has raised to hire me because at the time my English wasn't so good. I could, could do the job back. My, I wasn't really fluent. Um, and I realized that, you know, UX is all about communication. So I started to work for House of Fraser. Pretty big brand to take a chance on you, not just a company in a corner of Colchester. Very big, very big established. But the interesting thing is my boss was willing to take a risk because he really liked my approach of how CUX. And he said to me, that's, you know, they, they give you like a, a design task, right? And he said to me, that's the best task I've seen. So I had to hire you in my team. So that's where I started. But I want to come back to how I get to working in the UK. So when I moved to the UK, I haven't had a job. I just got a couple of savings. And my family said, you need to find a job. Not because I had to work, but they wanted me to get used to the, uh, the British system, how things work. So for me, having you know, such experience was very difficult to go back to a very low paid job. But I did it. So I worked for Cineworld. I did that for about nine months <clears throat> and it has helped me to understand pure uh, user experience and service because this company is really around, you know, customer service. Um, so I did many, you know, the small, small jobs. So I was a cashier. I was also the cleaning team. Um, also helped me, you know, the, <laughs> also have the supervisors with cash and everything. So I've learned quite a lot. But the main thing is I've learned about how customer experience impact the stuff. So what I mean by this is the way around. So we care about the customer experience that's visible, but we don't see how the employee experiences has an impact on customer experience, right? And it's an interesting thing for me, I've realized that I was also part of the problem because, you know, not being well-paid, long hours, you get tired of hearing the same thing and same thing. So you start to become a bit like a machine. And that's why I think I've started to develop this sense of empathy because you know, at the time, people were paying 15, 20 pounds for a seat. And I was thinking, you know, it's, it's a lot of money to go to cinema. And uh, you don't deserve to have, you know, such a bad experience because I'm not in a, a good mood or I'm tired. This reminds me of uh, when I was younger, I used to work in the service industry as, as a bartender. You learn so much about ser a service-driven business when you work behind a bar or at a cashier or it's in a world, as you said, it's really, it really gives you a lot for later on. I think you learn a lot when you work in entertainment and um, leisure industry because when people are coming to relax, some people have to work and it's a very different dynamic, right? If, you know, people want to, 
to uh, understand where I came from, I'm earning in one day what I used to earn in one month. It's a big difference. And to me, it's just when people say, you know, things are difficult. Yes, they are. But there's, there's a way, always a way, right? And I think I want to tell to people if they, you know, they have a dream or they want to chase something, they have to try. You can't, you can't live with regrets. And I think for me, the best thing I have done is trying. So how did you get from Cineworld to starting your own VC fund? Let's talk about that because it sounds like such a big difference. It sounds like a crazy project. So through my career, I studied House of Fraser. Then I went to work for Selfridges. Uh, and then I did a couple of consulting. Then I worked and joined a company called uh, POQ. So it was a, it's still, still, still running, by the way. It's very successful, but they have the biggest retailers in the UK on their platform. So it's a native retail uh, app platform where retailers can launch within three months. Where I've learned about startup is at this company because they were in the process of raising their second or third round. And when I joined, it was slightly before Series A. So I've seen, I've seen the change where they had the first injection of cash and they're trying to raise, you know, get more customers and improve the product. But once, once Series A has kicked in, Dynamic has really changed the company in terms of size, has grown massively. It was a very lead engineering company, so quite challenging for me because they brought me, brought me in to bring design, but I was the only one designer. And that was a very, very, very special experience. What was very interesting is the new user experience has a value, but how do you make it work with a you know, very engineer-lead company in terms of culture and how they think? I think that's a great, one of the greatest challenges I had in my career. So how did that work? Was, is that something you helped with or did they bring someone external to help or? No, so I started. What I realized is getting closer to the engineering team, engineering team. So we just, you know, we started very small. So things I explained to them was user experience start with, you know, look and feel. If something looks good, you can trust it. So we had some couple of issues when it comes to implementation, not because, you know, they were lazy or they couldn't do it, it's because the tools they were working with had a lot of implement, um, implementation restrictions. So we tried to work around it. So we found a very simple process. Do you remember Zeppelin at the time when they created the, you know, the first tool where you could compare your iOS simulator versus yeah. your design? That's where we started to work. So that's how we fixed it. Uh, but the interesting thing is the guys the company started to like working this way uh, and they also seen the impact on the user experience and also the reviews we had so it was just the beginning and then i did a bit more further education when it comes to user experience so i explained to them that it's not just the app itself but it's understanding the whole customer journey from end to end and i was trying to explain to them that when people use the app it's just one touch point in their journey because you know we used to have a lot of uh, good reviews and bad reviews, and most of the bad reviews were about the delivery service. Long lead times or expensive delivery costs. Um, and they didn't understand why people were complaining and it was impacting the, um, the app ratings. So I explained to them that for them, when they, deal, you know, when they use the app with X brand, they don't know behind its POC, it's transparent. So they complain because for them, it feels like they're interacting with the brand. So that was a very interesting thing to to try to get them to understand. The very, very, very big change I had to face was, I knew the management believed in UX, but 
they were not really focused on bringing more resources because it wasn't part of the business model. So for me, it was a very hard and harsh experience because I knew what I could bring. But it's only, you know, a couple of years later, stepping back, I realized that it's not really their uh, competitive advantage because their competitive advantage was to be able to launch a product in six months or three to six months, right? And start generating that revenue through a digital channel. So it took me a lot of, you know, maturity and, ex- and reflection to think of it. But at the time, it was really difficult because I wanted to, wanted to create my team. I wanted, you know, I wanted to have like a much bigger say in the business or at least have some influence. Didn't happen, but they let me, you know, they let me to uh, create like a small team. I had two designers with me. And then what we realized is all of a sudden that what we really needed to do was to help closing uh, business. So when they had, you know, you know, prospects to talk to, that's where design came, came very handy. So we used to do some previews of the app. So we found a way, you know, on um, early stage, early days of sketch to streamline everything, you know, with components. So we could create like an app preview within two hours, send it across to clients so they can have like a preview of what they're buying. Right. That's so interesting. I've I never heard about this, but it just goes to show that design in organizations can take different forms. You mentioned in the beginning and a, I really liked was you said in this process of trying to educate everyone, you started very small. You started just with the look and feel. And then you said, well, actually, you know, this is more of a service design. It's, it's, there are more touch points. So I always like to say that about life in general, that it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And it's exactly the approach you've had, which is I'm going in, I'm going to be there for a long time, or at least that's the plan. And I can take my time to do this right. Because I feel that oftentimes we go into companies and we we care, we're passionate about what we do. But the downside of that is that we want to do everything yesterday if possible. And in bigger organizations, that's just not that's just not possible all the time. So how have you throughout the, the roles you've had in the past managed to steer the ship over time? And now I'm referring mostly to your day-to-day tasks. So I think one thing I realized is if I look at myself back, you know, back in the days as a designer, I think there was a, an anxiety inside of me. I needed to produce things that impact and scale. So then I could become much more comfortable with the things I do. And what, I think to, what I'm trying to explain is I used to judge myself and look at things for what I can produce, if that makes sense. So if I couldn't produce, I couldn't roll out big projects or big features, then I wasn't feeling confident. And I thought, if I cannot do this, then other company wouldn't hire me and then I wouldn't be able to, you know, climb up the ladder going from, you know, senior designer to lead to, you know, UX manager. So that was my biggest, biggest, you know, biggest fear, anxiety. But what has helped me to realize why I was wrong, it was looking at other companies and talking to other people. And what I realized is when you're part of a company, whether it's big or small, you have a role to play. And unfortunately, this role will have a cap. So what I've learned is try to control what you have control over. And the things you cannot control, try to influence it. But do not have expectation to change it because you're not responsible for it, right? And, I, and that's one of the biggest principles when I look at user experience. When I design solutions is what do I control? Or what can I not control? The shift has happened when I've realized that I need to understand how design is enabled in every company I'm going to work for. 
when I worked in retail, I knew design was to generate sales and increase conversion. It's very easy to quantify. When I worked in B2B SaaS, for example, uh, because it was retail, the metrics were simple, but the execution was very difficult because when you don't work for the end user, you work for the client that's bought your solution, and it's very different. So we were thinking, you know, we can have the best user experience for consumers, but the reality is, how can you do everything to make more money, you know, increase the download? So it's a very different design, right? Um, and this is what I also realized is designing for B2B and designing for B2C of two different things, very different. And I do, and I've, I've realized myself, right? Working with other designers and hiring other designers, not a lot of them has this exposure to B2B and B2C. You know, a lot of designers think of things from a B2C point of view because they want to simplify things and make things, you know, look good and pretty. But when you work in the B2B, for example, it's an environment where people are used to frictions because, you know, business, business process and operations are made of frictions to reduce the risk. It's a very different way of designing. In B2B, design will be enabled to either increase sales, increase customers' base, or reducing the cost to produce, for example. But then B2C, you know it's to increase conversion, you know it's, it's increasing you know, the people going through the door, uh, and you know it's to reach as many as possible. But you don't really think maybe of you know, reducing the cost. So GM, those are very different dynamics. So would you say that there are different skills required for, des for designers to be good at B2B versus B2C? Would you say there are different skills required or it's the same skills, it's just the implementation or the thinking around them? I think there's different designers within design. Not everyone, not everybody is going to be, uh, you know, a unicorn. It's not possible. You can strive to it, but you, you know, you're not going to be because you can, you know, you can become a thousand times better what you're good at rather than trying to be good at something you're mediocre. So it's knowing your strengths and your, and your weaknesses. But the reason why I'm saying they are different designers within design is because design is a very complex field and it's touching everything from the surface all the way to the deepest level. I believe in design, you have people that are really good at designing things and making visually pretty and aesthetic so you can engage and connect with people. I think that's one set of skills. The second thing is you have people that are much more focused on how do you make things, you know, much more streamlined and easy to, to use. For me, that's more product design slash user experience. But I think there's a bigger picture, which is, you know, how design uh, is mapping out to the business model and the company strategy. What I mean by this is if you understand, for example, what are the strategy the company has to go through in order to hit certain milestones, if design is aligned, then it can help with it. If a company is going through a period of growth, you need to have an experience that allows you know, growth. But you're not going to, and, and what I realized is that depending on the, on the, on the stage the company at, is at, your user experience is going to be very different. When you're going to design for your adopters, things are going to be very much simplified, easy, you know, no friction whatsoever because you want them to use. But think about right now, if you want to design something for Uber, it's going to be very complex. You've got to think about, you know, systems. You've got to think about regulation. You've got to think about legal, so that kind of stuff. So it's going to become very much more complicated. And I think there's different designers for different stages. That's what I believe in, and that's what I've seen so far. In my experience, I know that I'm much more comfortable and better at taking things off the ground rather than taking things and helping them to improve and, you know, and uh, uh, what's it called, the incremental... Um, 
iterations Sorry. over time. Iteration is not something that I'm good at because I really love, you know, going to some going somewhere when it's kind of blind and you know there's a need, but you're not really sure. That's what I love. I love to take something from zero, take it off the ground and change perspective perspective and perception or how something can be seen and working. This is similar to that anecdote of a CEO that starts a company and brings it to, I don't know, $10 million in revenue, whatever, and then steps aside for someone to take over that company and bring it to $100 million. A very different skills are required to start a company and bring it to one versus 10 versus $100 million dollars revenue. Absolutely. like Scaling is very different from starting. So what, how, how do you know what you're good at? How can a designer reflect over what they're good at? Is it just what they enjoy doing? Is it trying to work in different types of companies and seeing where they fit best? How do you think someone figures out which ones of these types of designers one is? I think it's a tough one, especially when you start. I do think, you know, as individuals, there they are things we tend to love more than others. So, you know, some people like, for example, to ask questions and, you know, getting the, at the bottom of things. So you're probably more likely to to like running research. Some people like to, you know, visualize ideas and coming up with concepts. They might be better, you know, at product design or even visual design. Some people like to think, right? They like to think of the bigger picture. They like to think about the single details of how an interaction is going to work or how the business is going to work, you know, with design. So I think at the beginning it's very hard, but this is why I think we still have a lot of work to do when it comes to design education. I know it's one topic you like to talk about, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Let's do it. Let's do it. What's your take on it? I think it's a tough one because I do realize something. There is this, I don't know if it's a bias, but you know, because it's a creative industry, we started as a creative industry. There's always this thing of you have to go through, you know, the small steps in order to get to the bigger steps because you have the creative leadership so that you can inspire people. I don't know if it's a good thing or bad thing, but let's say, for example, if we had some sort of program that helps you to understand what you're good at. But maybe as you come out straight from school, you could be diving straight into strategy rather than, you know, like going to, you know, the usual uh, like junior UX designer doing a bit of research, you know, talking about UI and that kind of stuff. Because I think it's good to have an understanding of how things all work together. But why would you have to, not waste, but why would you have to wait a few years in order to make a decision of where you want to go, if that makes sense? So I I partially agree. And let me give you my view on that. I think the way, just to answer my own question earlier, my own take on it, the way you find out what you're good at is by trying a lot of things. So I believe that when you're early in your career, you need to go and work for someone in-house, go and work for an agency, go and work for an NGO if you want. And you don't learn to play basketball by reading a book. Right? You need to play. I think that's super important. And the reason I also think it's important to do everything is because unless you do everything, you can never really put your um, hand on your heart and say, this is what I truly like the most. And I think it's also super necessary because as designers, we need to collaborate with each other. We need to collaborate cross departments, whether that's developers, product managers, whoever. And I think you need to have an overall understanding of design and every step of the design process in order to be able to confidently collaborate with other people. So, however, because now I'm going to contradict myself, what I like about what you said is how cool would it be that school would actually help you find out what you're good at? That's great. 
because then you need to know, oh, I want to end up being a, a design strategist, but still, how do you, but how do you get there, right? And helping you get there, taking you through all these steps that I, again, believe, I believe you need to be a pixel pusher for a bit in order to understand what design strategy. So, so I think, I think um, that would be awesome if design education, if there would be a program that could do that. Unfortunately, it's not. Uh, would you, talking about design education, would you say that's the best way to start now if you want to become a designer or are you more on the other bandwagon of a self-learner? I don't know. I don't think I can answer this question because I'm self-taught. I didn't go to school to learn. I've done many, you know, courses and stuff, but it's not having a proper degree or education. But I also think that not being, you know, from a design school, for example, has given me different way of thinking. But it's a bit of a complex one to answer because, like you said, you need to do a bit of everything to understand what is design as a field. And then you can specialize. Um, let's talk a bit about one of the common experiences we have, which is digital transformation programs. I mean, we've both been in those types of programs several bring times. On, bring yeah. on, bring <laughs> let's, let's tackle the <laughs> elephant in the room. I was thinking the other day, do you think it's possible to go into a company that doesn't have digital in its DNA and actually successfully perform a digital transformation program? Ooh, an easy one. No, I know. That's why I'm asking you, because I, I don't have an answer. <laughs> I think I'm going to be controversial here. I don't believe in digital transformation, because uh, you, don't, you, don't, you don't just change a channel, you change a business. So we'll call it business transformation first. Not, not for playing the, with the words, but words are important and they mean things, right? I think the hardest question to answer is, what's the reason why they need to transform, first of all? Do they need to transform because they are losing customers and there's an urgency to get more sales? Or do they need to transform because the long-term strategy of your company has changed and they need to take baby steps to get there, right? Those are two different things. And I think business transformation starts at a much higher level, starts at a shareholder's level, which is not something as designers, you know, if you work in a company, you don't necessarily have the chance to be part of those conversations, but that's where things are really happening, right? So it's really understanding what is the aim or objective of this transformation. Because if it's just, for example, modernizing, so playing catch up, right? Having a much more like easier way to interact online with like some sort of transactional portal or whatever, it's one thing. But if it's like changing your, your business model completely, it's not going to be an easy journey. Because when you have a balance sheet, you have obligations and you can't really take risks, if that makes sense. So when you have, for example, a massive employee to pay, you can't just say, look, we're going to change the business model. And even if, you know, we're not breaking even, we're going to try it. It's very different, right? And plus, I think the hardest thing is because you have shareholders, they took the risk seven, 10 years ago. Now they are, you know, they're reaping the rewards. They're not necessarily ready to take the risk and wait another seven years to get returns. And I think that's probably the biggest challenge you're going to have in a digital business transformation is how do you convince the shareholders to wait or make more investment and wait to get more returns. That's the biggest, biggest challenge, I think. Okay, so let's say there's, I see two different paths here for someone interested in working in one of those organizations. So one is, the one you're saying is, look, as a designer, you're gonna come into one of these companies that wants to do a digital transformation and you might not necessarily have a lot of impact because the decision starts at the top. So you will, more or less, you'll be a, 
you'll be part of the team that executes the the change. You won't necessarily be the the brains behind it. So that's one. Yeah. There's the other one, which is if I as a designer want to have impact in an organization, I need to make sure that the organization I work for is fit for my ambitions. And that's where I think we could talk a bit about doing your due diligence as a designer before saying yes to an offer from a specific company or no. How do you do that? What is What are some, some key important aspects that someone listening to this could learn? Maybe they have, they're sitting on two offers and they're not sure whichever one to choose. How do you do your due diligence? Uh, it's not an easy one, this one. <laughs> This is the podcast with all the hard questions. Yeah, that's a very hard one. Um, <laughs> I think the main thing is, does this company align with your personal values? So, you know, the whole company business, does it fit with one of your values as an individual? I think that's the first one. Like, are you behind the mission of business because you think that something is aligned with who you are as a person? I think the second thing is due diligence. You can look at the external perception of the company. So you look at, for example, how customers think of it. So is, is you know, any, you know, article, PRs, whatsoever. Reviews are a good way to look at this. Uh, LinkedIn, Glassdoor, you can see how, you know, people are intern internally treated and, you know, how the senior management is looking after people. But, you know, I've been in this industry for like 13, 14 years now. Um, I've been through many interviews. It's very difficult to find out because people want to show their, their, their best right when you interviews it's only when you're going to work with them you're going to see who they really are right you're going to find out about their character flows and qualities and you know and weaknesses and stuff so so it's i think it's a hard one but if you have the chance to find people who are working in the company for example that could give you an indication of this if you go to meetups you might be able to meet people so i think there's a way but uh, there's always a risk there's always a risk. I think there are ways of trying to minimize the risk, but the, the risk will always be there. I agree with you. I think one of the things that I've always tried to do is to ask specific questions during the interview process. You can ask some questions that people have rehearsed for, and you can ask some questions that people cannot rehearse for because you, you're taking them by surprise. So for example, uh, an interesting one to answer is why this role exists. Right? A lot of people don't necessarily have necessarily thought of that. So why why is this role a thing now? Oh, it's it's either because someone got fired, in which case you want to find out what happened there as much as you can find out. Maybe it's a new role because they are they have a digital yeah. transformation project or whatever it is, uh, expand or expanding. Yeah. So there are a few questions you can ask to try to figure out if you would be a good fit in your company. But I'd like to say that I think these questions are not standard for all of us. I think everyone needs to look into the mirror and decide what's really important and then ask questions based off of that. So I wouldn't want to put a, a standard set of questions there, but always figure out what is important to you and then ask questions to try to understand whether that company aligns with your values, as you said in the beginning. I think that's um, super important. Okay, so in the past... You just said 13, 14 years. I can imagine you've seen the design industry change quite a lot. And I'm thinking, especially from the perspective of your own role. So what a designer was asked to do 15 years ago is very different than what a designer is being asked to do today. How have you seen that shift happen over the last 15 years? It's been quite progressive. So just to give you an idea, when I left 
France when I, in 2012, there was 50, 100 people doing UX. 15 or 50? 50 to 100. 50 to 100. Wow, that's it. Very wow. small. Very small. And it wasn't called user experience. It was called strategic planning. Um, and for me to get a job was very difficult. The way it has evolved, I think it's, you know, big companies such as Facebook, Amazon have shown how user experience has a big impact on companies, right? And how much impact design can make. So I'm not talking about as an individual, I'm talking about as a group. So I think it went from very, you know, aesthetic driven first. So pixel pushing and, you know, UI and style guide, all that kind of thing to a much more, more like solving problems approach kind of thing. So I'm not saying problem solving, but more solving problems as in we think there's a problem there and that's how we should solve it. And that's how, you know, they want designers to come in and help you to explore solutions. So much more, I would say, like um, a bridge between the, you know, the classic UX slash UI. I think that's where we are right now. I still think there's still some challenges to sell the whole user-centered design approach, or even say human-centered approach, uh, with research, because it's always seen as it's going to slow down things. We're not going to go to market faster. Or, you know, there's people are skeptical about the sample. They're saying to you, five, you know, five users is not enough, so they're not representative, you know, of the market, right? So there's all those things. But I do think that now, the more and more I, sp- I speak to different, you know, different companies and founders and CEO, they know design has a huge impact. But how to enable it? I think this is what the big question is right now. Yeah, I think it's, it's progressing, definitely progressing. There's much more, you know, there's much more of us on the market than before. But you still have companies with terrible user experience. So there's an awareness of we need designers, but maybe the next step is how do we enable them to deliver value for business? So I think that a lot of this transition that you're talking about, that you've seen over the past many years, happened because at a wider scale, as you said earlier, companies like Facebook and Amazon and all that have shown how design, again, as a, as a wider concept, can impact the organization. I think there's a precursor to that, and that is designers on the ground, the ones that are doing the work every single day, as much as possible, showing the impact of their work to the organization. We, you briefly touched upon it earlier, you know, in, in retail and in e-commerce, you have a very specific, a very well-defined metric we're going for, and that is the conversion rate or how much are we selling versus how much effort we're putting into this. But if you look at any other industry, as designers, we don't really have a way of showing the impact of our work. It's very blurry. So how do we do that? It's difficult because all we're doing is very abstract. It's not something you can touch, right? You can touch an app, you can interact with, but you can't really touch something. You know, like when you produce a, a, um, like an industrial product, for example, you can touch it, you have a feel. I think it's difficult because design on its own cannot operate. Right, design on his own cannot, you know, can't run a company. I still think a lot of people have misconception and misunderstanding of what design is. Right. So, you know, me and you, we know that most of people understand it from a UI level, you know, branding, uh, style guide and you know how things look and feel. But it's missing the element of design is business. And I think that's the, probably the biggest thing we have to work on is yes, design equal business. And when I say this is I've seen it myself. If you have the right business model, you can design the right business. Or if you have 
identify the right customer needs, then you will find a business model at some point. But if something is flawed, so whether you know the the need you're solving is not big enough or it's not viable or nobody's interested in there, then you can do whatever you want. If people don't want it, they don't want it. I think there are ways of doing that, but they they're not very well defined and they are different from industry to industry. So just like e-commerce has that conversion rate, you were talking earlier about B2B software as a service companies. One of the interesting parts about working B2B where I have where most of my experience actually is, is that the end user is not the one that's in charge of procurement, like in business to consumer. There's an operation manager or whatever buying a piece of software and then everyone else in the company has to use it, whether it's good or bad. But one thing that I've learned is that you can actually dig deeper into what some of these people are using the products for, how much time and effort it takes them to do that now, and then see, well, with this new product that we have, it takes them half of the time. And now suddenly someone in some sort of a spreadsheet can actually put a number to what's the value of that product. So there are ways, but I think what we're struggling with as an industry is finding one way that works across every industry. I don't think we'll ever find it. And I think that's a good thing. I don't think we'll. I think it's a good thing, yeah. For me, when I, you know, when I work with uh, companies and my clients, I define B2B and B2C very differently. So B2C for me, the way I define it is it's, a, it's a way to digitalize your business. So you're basically breaking down every single step of your business process for someone to buy. So it's simplifying the experience from outside. So you remove the frictions. Uh, you offer, for example, the best payment method they are used to. You make it very easy to find the product they want. The experience is very simple, so you don't have to think too much about where to find things whatsoever. So this is what I have C, you know, uh, B2C. It's uh, from an outside perspective, how do I make things so, so much easier that I can get sales, right? When it comes to B2B, it's very different, especially if it's like an employee software, because you're solving a lot of pains due to the nature of the work, which is collaboration most of the time, right? I need information from someone. If I don't have it, I can't carry on. Or um, I need to solve this task, but there's many you know, steps in a business process because we need to manage risk. And so what I realized with B2B, it's all, well, B2B slash employee experience, it's all about how do you cut down the time for people to do their job the fastest as possible. And it's a very interesting, you know, it's a very interesting thing when it comes to, to design. So I currently work for a ship, maritime shipping company. So very, very traditional business. And it took them quite a lot of time to, to jump on a, you know, digital transformation bandwagon. But it's happening. Uh, and I, one of the things, for example, for me, which was very kind of difficult to understand at the beginning was, you know, when we design interfaces, we like to simplify things with like the main CTA so people can focus on this. What I realized in V2B is not that. It's all about how can you show me as many controls as possible so I don't have to think about it. And it's a very different design. And again, the way you measure it, quantify it is very different. Like for me, my company, what we sold to other companies is the fact that we are centralizing all operations into one platform and everyone's got access to everything. So it's like, you know, this whole thing about single source of truth, communication and uh, internal operations all in one place. Uh, but it's also cutting down the time, removing the friction with the current software they have. So it's a very different thing. And for me, I really enjoy it because it's actually much more problem solving slash uh, human centered rather than commercial, commercially driven, if that makes sense. Like for us, we don't make money 
by selling stuff. We make money because we solve problems on a daily basis, and that's the value we create, and that's what we can sell to other companies. Rather, you know, like a consumer goods company, I need to sell stuff as, as many as I can sell. That's how the company becomes, you know, uh, valuable. Yeah, totally. It comes down to the business goals because design needs to be linked to the business goals. In business to consumer, if the goal is to sell a product or a service, the metrics are going to be different than in business to business where the value you're adding is maybe improving efficiency in a company or cutting down the time it takes an employee to perform a task five times a week. So design needs to be linked to that business goal. And when we track design, obviously it needs to be tracked based on those business goals. It requires a bit of a different way of thinking when you design in B2C versus B2B. So staying on the topic of thinking differently, you're about to go on an adventure and start your own VC fund that does things a bit differently. So tell us a bit about that and tell us why. Something that I always thought, you know, I worked in many companies, diversity wasn't there at all. I worked in a company that I was the only like diverse person in the, in, in, the, in the room. That's the main reason why I want to go on that journey and create this, you know, this venture capital that we mentioned. I've realized diversity will only change or start to change if more of us take the risk to give back. What I also realize is, you know, all those problems we have, they will only change if wealth is created on those, in those communities. Because when you have wealth, you have access to network, you have access to influence, you have access to some people, right, that can change and balance the world. And that's what I want to try to, not to achieve, but that's what I want to try to do. So the venture capital I'm going to create is going to be targeted, not necessarily just underrepresented founders, but it's more people coming from poor backgrounds, but a lot of people have a lot of ideas, but they don't, you know, they don't evolve within those, the same crowd as me and you. They don't know people are paid for designing products. They don't know all of this. So what I want to bring, I want to make it more accessible, the knowledge that's already existing there. So when it comes to design, business, finances, and all of that, because I believe a lot, lot of them has ideas and they don't even try because they're afraid to fail because being the background, sorry, being the ethnic background they are, it's going to be even more harder because we know if you know, for example, you know, Caucasian, it's going to be two times harder. Let's be, let's be real, right? So I want to create a shift, which is, you know what? It's doable because I have seen someone looking like me trying to do it. If we allow people to fail, we're going to learn more about things we actually don't necessarily understand or even heard of. Like you think, so for me, the one thing I think of is all those, you know, underrepresented communities, there's a lot of data we don't have on them. We don't know how they consume. We don't know how much they spend. We don't know why and how. And I think there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunities there for investors. Those, you know, like kind of, want to invest in things that are different um, and I want to create this this room for for everyone also one thing I realized myself right working with many startups is there's nothing more dangerous than giving money to someone as a first-time founder what I mean by this is you can give money to someone but if they don't have the, the experience the knowledge the people they're gonna burn through your cash simple because they don't know right and what I want to bring is, I want to bring on this more hands-on approach. So, you know, you dedicate a team that's helping those founders to get to a milestone to another. The reason why I'm saying this is much more important is because 
I would say 90 or 80% of the time, every startup or first-time founders always make the same mistakes. And if you think as an investor, it's very risky, right? But imagine now you can have a team behind, I'm not saying we're securing your money, but we're taking more steps to reduce the risk. I think that can create a very different dynamic. Olivier, a couple more questions for the end. Everyone gets asked this, so uh, you, you don't get to run away before. To escape. <laughs> yeah. First one is, how do you reckon the future of design looks like? Um, I think we're living in a more and more in a complex world. Everything is intertwined. I think it's all going to be about you know mapping ecosystems together. That's what I believe. And I think we're going to move toward things that are a bit more, well, definitely more personalized, first of all automated, even proactive, AI, machine learning. So learning from people and even how to identify the next patterns of behaviors, I think. But I've seen something very interesting. I think we are going back to, it's a cycle. And I think people are needing much more, much more attention. What I mean by this is, I think we're okay to interact with machines, but I think we crave for human interaction. Digital can help, but we still need people involved in the in the process, that makes sense. I know, I, I can't say I can, I can really predict, right? But I do believe we're gonna, we're gonna see, I think, a interesting um, decade, I think, especially in the pandemic. There's much more industries that have not been disrupted that are going to be disrupted. For example, you know, healthcare. Lots of disruption in healthcare. Logistics has been heavily disrupted. Shipping as well. Right, some very old industry has been disrupted too. So there's, a, I think there's, yeah, there's a lot of things that are going to. Happen. Aviation is another one. I think is a very interesting one. I don't know it's interesting. I think I, be, I believe in much more ethical companies. Uh, what I mean by this is we've all seen, you know, the big companies, multi-billion companies being wealthy, but cutting down on the human side of things. So I think it's bringing more eth- ethics back into business. Uh, and then money is, money is one drive, but it's not the only drive, I think. That's what I can think of. Do you think design has a place in all of these? Because these are a lot of, around business, right? But do you think design is going to be the driver? Yeah, the belief. Because as designers, we have this ability to design a better world. We can design a better world, right? So if you see something is broken, we can try to find some pieces of answers to try to fix it, I think. Right. Last one. What's one thing you wish more designers would know? About business. Much more. Oh, business. Yeah. yeah. You know, the simple one-on-one. That's what the podcast is about, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> when I say business yeah. is, one of, is one-on-one is, you know, sales versus, you know, losses. So P&L. But things like, you know, I think it's much more around how a business really works, right? So what's the triggers that bring customers? You know, all the things around customer acquisition, lead generation, how you convert them, onboarding, um, then the whole post-purchase experience, upgrading, upselling, all of this I think should be taught from the very beginning and then helping them to map out how design can actually help. So if you know you need to increase your conversion rates, then you also need to spend more money in customer acquisition or maybe there's a way to decrease it and get more more customers. So that's why I see, I think it's those basic one on right, right? You know, Jared Paul is something that I learned a lot from. And one thing he said is when you speak to an exec, they care about five things. How much money do we make? How much can we save? How many more customers can we get? Can we diversify? 
And the five one, the fifth one is, can you diversify? So can you can you upsell? Sorry. So how much more can you make from each customer? So and I think this is the five thing that every every designer should be taught of. So then they will understand that you can still be creative, but you need to be able to create this bridge between the business sort of management. Awesome. Olivier, where can people find you, read about you, connect with you, keep an eye on when that fund is coming out, etc. Yeah, so f- just my LinkedIn for now. Your LinkedIn for LinkedIn now. For cool. now. Yeah, cool. but I will uh, I will update you when uh, when it's happening. Cool. We'll put that in uh, the show notes so everyone can um, find and you if, with one click. Yeah, if anyone is interested to join, please feel free even if you know not everybody has to bring money but I need skills, I need people with different backgrounds and stuff. And yeah, let's, let's make it happen. It's not just money. Fantastic. Olivier, thanks so much once again for being part of Design Meets Business. I really, really appreciate you taking the time and um, hopefully we'll catch up soon again. Thank you for having me, Christian. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Since you've made it this far, I hope you found this useful. And if you did, you should know there's much more content just like this on the way. So if you want to learn more about how designers can impact businesses, please consider subscribing and maybe sharing the episode with others. And before I say goodbye, remember that you can find show notes and links for this episode and others on our website, designmeetsbusiness.co. Catch you in the next one.